Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast. Hello, I hope that you're keeping well. Welcome to another edition of the Africa Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. The Sham el-Sheikh decision was reached early morning on last Sunday, the 20th of November, as the official plenary started at 4 a.m. Yes, 4 a.m. I wanted to bring you this analysis last week, but it's been a crazy week trying to maneuver technical difficulties arising from Sham. But thank God we are all system go now and back to normal schedules. Thank you so much. I can see that you have kept true and been coming over here despite me missing in action. But I also encourage you to check out the Africa Climate Conversations YouTube channel and subscribe as well. Now, among the wins for the continent was the establishment of a loss and damage facility, which was pushed very hard by the G77 and China. Africa is in this group, as well as the civil society who did a marvelous job. And yes, this facility was um, vehemently opposed by the United States of America at the beginning. Now, the fund is not yet set up yet, and hence there is no money yet. But next year, the COP determined that the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage Secretariat host should be selected by 2023. So I will find an expert soon, and we can speak more about loss and damage, the Santiago Network, and moving forward in depth. But there are key things that I believe should must be addressed and made clear, uh, you know, such as the sources of these funds, uh, where will they come from, will they be public, will be the private Remember, we do not want money that push nations further into debts. Also, the modalities for accessing financial support for addressing loss and damage as well as compensation, because one of the difficulties has been accessing climate finance in general. The other thing is the definition of the legal aspect of the compensation, because we're talking about losses, um, compensation, big, huge money that developed nations must pay to developing nations because of the losses they are and damages they are incurring because of climate change. And the reason why developed nations are the ones who have this responsibility is because of the, the ones who have led the world to be where it is in terms of warming because of a lot of emissions they have done over the years as they developed. So we're talking about climate change losses. And of course, as a country, I believe for you to be compensated, there are legal aspects that can arise because then you have to the responsibility in terms of uh, proving that the losses you've gone through, the damages you've gone through are as a result of these climate issues. I'm saying this given that at COP27, you know, it's 13 years since climate finance was promised and definition of what constitutes climate finance arose, you know. And so I think learning from such issues, it's important in terms of those definitions have to be put in place. And also countries have to realize there will be legal aspect in terms of you're asking another country to compensate for the losses that you've actually done. So you have to prove that. For me, it is great to have it enshrined on the sham decisions. But the key things at the end is ensuring the funds are finally available to countries and not as debts and that burdens nations further. And also ensuring that these nations can actually receive this compensation. On the same front, there were some initiatives that were launched to address loss and damage. One of them was a global shield against climate risks. What is happening is that there is a group of seven rich nations, among them Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States of America, who are cooperating with about 20 vulnerable countries. They're calling themselves V20. This is a group of 58 vulnerable economies from developing countries. In Africa, we have countries like Ghana, Ethiopia, Kenya, Benin, Burkina Faso, Chad, Cote d'Ivoire, Democratic Republic of the Congo, 
Eswatini, the Gambia, Guinea, Liberia, Madagascar, Malawi, Maldives, Morocco, Niger, Papua New Guinea, Rwanda, Senegal, South Sudan, the Sudan, Tanzania, Tunisia, and Uganda. Now, as you see, these are not all African countries. So what is happening here is that some experts thought such initiatives are good, but they are divisive, you know, as they are picking some developing countries and promising them the loss and damage financing, while the essence was to push through the core process was as developed countries to come together and push for a common fund that would be accessible to all countries equally. So I spoke to Charity Megri, the 350.org Africa regional campaigner, and to her this is leaders not looking forward and being short-sighted. I think African leaders are um, a bit short-sighted. Maybe there was an intent for them to speak with one voice, but the approach of you know one global north country cherry-picking one African country and making pledges with them kind of is a divide and conquer rule so it kind of you know creates that split so it makes african leaders not speak with one voice but they are very short-sighted to actually see that and they are happy with pocketing the pledges (laughs) and not realizing that they could actually get much more if they only you know resisted that approach spoke with one voice and demanded even more because there's a lot of damage there's a lot of loss that has happened in uh, african countries the unf triple c process is not binding uh, so that's the sad thing and the global leaders know this and so they can come and blah 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 but it's never binding so i think that uh, unf triple c should identify mechanisms to actually make some of these things binding uh, so that you know there can be an actual commitment an actual process that makes global north countries accountable for the damage that they have caused also at the moment global north are trying to avoid blame by saying that they're not liable but they acknowledge their moral responsibility that they need to offer loss and damage finance so they do not take it as a liability so they cannot be held legally accountable but they just feel out of their own goodwill they are morally responsible and so they pretend that they will do the right thing. On energy and mitigation, one of the key issues mentioned was the need to accelerate efforts towards the face down of unabated coal power and face out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. But also it's important to note that the text also mentions that the need to provide targeted support to the poorest and most vulnerable in line with the national circumstances and recognizing the need for support towards a just transition. Now, when you speak about just transition for Africa, the truth is there cannot be a just transition without access to energy. Majority of nations do not even have base loads. The continent is home to nearly 600 million people in the dark already in 2022. How can the continent produce without power? How can the continent industrialize without power? For years, we have seen mining of oil and gas benefiting other nations as these resources are exported raw. This is the same case for many minerals with the continent blessed with minerals such as cobalt, lithium, you know, hydrogen and many more that are very critical for the clean energy transition. It is very critical for African nations to rethink the lessons they've learned in oil and gas mining before and make sure that these minerals are processed in the continent now to benefit the people here. Also, with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, we are seeing the West looking into Africa for natural gas, you know, provisions and also other sources of energy like solar. 
and much of what is being produced is exported to Europe, not really benefiting the African nations. A case in hand is Mozambique, which is now conflict-ridden, uh, whose natural gas is actually being piped out uh, through South Africa. And we also have solar power in Morocco, okay? African nations have to make sure that as we mine these resources, they're just not uh, benefiting or carried out of this country role. They're also processed here and also make sure Africa can find a way of uh, making sure that their people are no longer in the dark. On adaptation, finally, there was a decision to initiate the development of a framework for the global goal on adaptation to be started through a structured approach under the Glasgow Shamesheikh work program next year in 2023. The hope is that the framework will be adopted during COP28. Global goal on adaptation is supposed to boost adaptive capacity, strengthening resilience and reducing vulnerability to climate change. You can learn more about it by clicking on a link below the podcast and you can check it. We did a podcast episode last year in November about the global goal on adaptation. On finance, the COP decided that the new collective quantified goal on climate finance will conclude in 2024 and that will take into account the needs and priorities of developing countries. Critical because the financial needs are in trillion of dollars and rising day by day and I believe the provision of $100 annually promised 13 years ago despite it being the floor is no longer a drop in the ocean as far as the needs of not just developing countries but even African countries. On the consideration of the special needs and circumstances for Africa, there was a draft decision as of the 17th of November, which had decided to acknowledge the special needs and circumstances of Africa states and those of other developing countries in the context of the implementation of the Paris Agreement. Now, this did not make sense since it's the African continent that was promised by the COP21 presidency, and that recognition is based on the convention under the Kyoto Protocol. But the decision was short-lived as uh, first we had the ILA countries, that is Latin America and the Caribbean, which opposed it. And also now uh, towards the end, we had the ABU group, that is the Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay, saying no to Africa's recognition. So the push continues next year. The one issue worth noting on this issue is the dynamic in terms of negotiating blocks that African countries find themselves in. About 33 African countries are considered least developed countries under the UN system and hence under the UNFCCC they negotiate as LDCs, that is least developed countries. Despite the fact that Africa has a common position, so they come together and I think, you know, consolidate everything. But then what I understand from some negotiators is the fact that you find sometimes when Africa is pushing, especially on this motion of recognition as special needs, you find, of course, the least developed countries are recognized. They have some kind of, you know, goodies, I would say, that actually come uh, from the whole same process and stuff. So when it comes to Africa as a whole pushing for recognition, they do not really support. These 33 countries do not really support the other African countries. So some of a group of negotiators on climate change have proposed that Africa needs a political representation that can actually prevail over this motion in terms of bringing all the African countries together. And that's where the Africa Union is coming in. And so when you go back to a podcast last year, towards the tail end, you'll find that we had an episode that talked about that, why the AU needs to have itself registered or accredited like the EU in terms of to negotiate on behalf of Africa and to also be present to making sure that Africa is present at the tail end. Because there is a point that negotiations get and it's beyond the technical team. And now it's get to another level where decisions are made politically. But the thing is, 
Africa is missing on that political level. So who is making decision for the African continent at that point? You know, so that's where the whole thing comes in terms of the AU need to be present and make sure that Africa is politically represented at that top level before now, the 4 a.m. Yeah, kind of plenary starts. That's the final decision. Finally, there was another initiative that is worth noting in a couple of African countries that is Sierra Leone, Mozambique, Monaco, Uganda and Angola are part of it. It's a group of 18 countries that have come together. From the Pacific, we have the Vanuatu, New Zealand, Samoa, and the Federated States of Micronesia. From the Caribbean, there is Antigua and Barbuda. And from the Latin America, we have Costa Rica. As I mentioned, from Africa, we have Sierra Leone, Mozambique, Monaco, Uganda, and Angola. Now, Vanuatu's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Raf Regenvanu, he said that these states have been working together over the last six months to draft a resolution that will be seeking the International Court of Justice to provide clarity necessary for countries to make better climate decisions at home and also during COP. Now, the resolution will be presented at the United Nations General Assembly before the end of the year so that countries are given an opportunity to vote for it before it's actually taken to the ICJ. And here's Regan Vanu on why these countries are seeking an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice and why it's important. What we have seen this week is that negotiations are not working for the most vulnerable, largely because it is not clear what our obligations to each other and to our people are. We are operating in a complex world where the rule of international law is under constant threat. International law is the guardrail we have ourselves established to ensure we cooperate for the good of humanity and for the good of our own sustainable development. Climate change, of course, is one of the world's most complex problems we face, one that has effects and is affected by all sectors and has implications on all aspects of international law. Many tend to think of international climate obligations as only falling under one treaty, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and its Paris Agreement, but this is not accurate. States have already collectively agreed to and ratified a range of international treaties and conventions, which contain protections for women, children, the environment, and human rights, all of which are now being significantly harmed by historical and growing emissions. We are convinced if we are to have clarity on existing legal obligations to prevent harm and better understand the legal consequences of enabling that climate harm, states would do a much better job of preventing, avoiding, and addressing it. 1.5 is a red line for humanity, and the advisory opinion will help states understand the international legal obligations to accelerate the decarbonisation pathway rather than by increasing supply of coal, oil and gas. On climate finance, an ICJ advisory opinion would support climate negotiations by considering parties' finance obligations contained in the UNFCCC and reaffirmed in the Paris Agreement and placing these obligations in the broader context of international law, including in connection with states' obligations to respect and ensure the right of self-determination. But most importantly, this advisory opinion will help states understand how they can apply human rights to obligations and protections to strengthening domestic policy and legislation on climate action. We put people, communities and future generations at the heart and centre of our state action. As you can see, this is not a court case. We are not blaming or shaming any state, but we are simply asking for clarity to help us all find a better way than where we are now. The climate crisis is, not, is just not about managing tons of carbon or degrees of Celsius. It is about addressing intergenerational equity and protecting the fundamental human rights of our people who are now losing livelihoods and lives across the world. An advisory opinion of the ICJ would foster ambition in the actions taken by states 
which is crucial for the success of the process set in motion by the Paris Agreement. At the same time, Joseph Morlin, the chair of the Alliance of Small Island States and the Minister of Health, Wellness and Environment from Antigua and Barbuda, noted the many other treaties existing, either dealing with climate, the environment and human rights. Now, how do all of these complement one another for the common good? Here's Morlin on how this effort will help all these treaties support one another. Unfortunately, we have fallen into a practice of separating concepts into silos. We have a treaty regime for the climate, we have a treaty regime for the law of the sea, and we have a treaty regime for human rights. But yet we rarely examine how the obligations and rights of states and individuals are interlinked and build upon one another across these different silos. The moment of this advisory opinion is now. Recognition of these interlinkages by the ICJ an acknowledgement of how obligations across the ecosystems of economic law, international law, support one another, will no doubt help the cause of nations facing the adverse effects of climate change and additionally those nations seeking to increase their climate ambition. This initiative is complementary to the current international legal regimes that are already in existence and will help to move all climate ambition in the right direction. And that's all we had for you today. I'm hoping that with the crazy schedules ahead, I can manage to keep an eye on the UN Biodiversity Conference, COP15, that is happening in Montreal, Canada, between 7 to 19 December this year. And of course, I'll tell you a little bit about decisions being made there. This is critical because it affects our natural heritage in terms of our trees, in terms of herbs, you know, and it's very important understanding the Nagoya Protocol and understanding in terms of biodiversity what is happening and what Africa is saying signing up to uh, that can be taken out of this continent and what we're talking about benefit sharing and stuff like that so do not miss that um, and i would encourage you to check our youtube channel and please subscribe if you haven't subscribed click on that notification bell on the africa climate conversations youtube channel to make sure you do not miss on this analysis we are likely to do it there i'm not exactly sure whether we're going to have an article here but i'll i'll, I'll see but for now thank you so much for the support and keeping true i will see you soon kaheri my name is Sophie Mbogwa. Africa Climate Conversations.